You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Just so you know, this episode contains frank discussion of animal abuse and meat processing. When I was a kid, growing up in the small ranching town of Walden, Colorado, I spent a whole lot of time in the school library. One time I asked a librarian to help me find some books from the point of view of animals. She sent me home with titles like The Incredible Journey and Watership Down. And these books really got me looking deep into the eyes of the cows that lived across the street from me. I started feeling weird about how much I loved my mom's delicious meatloaf. For the first time, I wondered, how did a cow go from wandering in that meadow to this sliceable, juicy loaf on my plate? Somehow, it had to die, and I didn't like that idea. So at the age of 14, I went vegetarian and talked my best friend into it, too. We'd stand on the other side of the fence and cheer on the cows. It was a short-lived phase, but as I got older, I kept thinking about that strange in-between time, after my ranching neighbors rounded up those cows and before they ended up on my plate. I remember when I worked on the Grizzly Ranch, our family friend Judy Elliott told me that sometimes she broke down in tears when she had to load the cattle onto the trucks to send them to the feedlot. I know them all by number, she'd say. If Judy was sad about where they were headed, that worried me. So when I went to college, I became a vegetarian for real. Some ranchers I knew were offended by that decision. Couldn't I see how well they took care of them? And I did. But it was after they left the ranch that I was concerned about. I kept reading more about animal welfare in the meat industry. Upton Sinclair's The Jungle depicted cruelty to animals in 1906 Chicago slaughterhouses. The American public was shocked by that novel. But afterwards, not a lot seemed to change. I've been wondering, why not? I recently chatted with Dana Jones from the Animal Welfare Institute, an organization that's been advocating for livestock since way back then. She told me Congress didn't get around to passing the Humane Slaughter Methods Act until 1958. The law did pass in the 1950s, the late 1950s. However, there was no enforcement mechanism. 
So nothing really changed, although some companies uh, began doing it voluntarily. And what they did voluntarily was stop using things like sledgehammers to individually just batter each animal until they were unconscious, but instead started going towards the use of the captive bolt, which is the way um, most cattle in the United States are still uh, rendered insensible to pain. But her group wanted to see the federal government truly enforce these new rules. It took decades, but... It was in the 1970s that the law was amended, and it was placed into the Federal Meat Inspection Act. And the enforcement mechanism, although a lot of people, if they're not very aware of it, they probably think it's not good enforcement. But in fact, it is. It allows inspectors to stop slaughter if they observe instances of the law being violated, which means multiple attempts to render an animal insensible to pain before the animal is shackled and hoisted and cut. The ability to stop slaughter is a powerful tool. And when it comes to raising beef, it's all about profits. So hitting meat packers where it hurts works. Dana says this enforcement method continues to do the trick. She's been working on this stuff for 30 years and says the treatment of animals is the best that she's ever seen. As a consumer, I've noticed that too. These days, I eat some meat, but I still try to get it humanely handled. I even led the charge to open a food co-op in my town of Laramie so our community could have easier access to locally grown meat. My husband and I own a coffee shop, and the sausage in our breakfast burritos, the bison in our Rubens, we're on a first-name basis with the ranchers who produce them. But still... I can't help feel that shadowy in-between time. After the cows leave the pasture, where do they go exactly? How do they end up on my plate? I decide it's time to go see with my own eyes. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. It's the dead of winter when I make the trip out to D&D Feedlot on the South Platte River in eastern Colorado. It's been really cold, double digit below zero at night. We pull up to the barn and Chelsea Deering comes out to greet us, decked out head to toe in insulated gear. She takes us right into the hospital barn where she has a couple of cows lined up to get shots. So we've got a couple of respiratories here. Um, so when we run them through, I just, I temp everybody. Um, and then anything that needs treated, we go ahead and treat. We have just a drug protocol that we kind of go by. Um, I did doctor him. He was just kind of crummy looking in the, in the pen, so um, he temped um, about 104.7, so I went ahead and doctored him quick. And now I'll just give him a tag and clip his, clip his other tag. Yeah. And then I'll let him out. Chelsea's dog, Here. Tough, helps herd the cow back into the feedlot. Then the next in line gets in. And so does the shoot, is it kind of do the squeeze thing that we hear about? Yep. Yeah, yeah this is considered a squeeze shoot. Uh-huh. Yep, so it's... It's calming. Yeah, so it's, um, that releases and then that squeezes. Uh-huh. So that's why they call it a squeeze shoot. Exactly. And I can adjust the floor as well. But even with a firm squeeze, this guy gets grumpy about Chelsea's doctoring. Uh-huh. He's not a very happy camper. <laughs> 
cold wind gave this guy a bad ear infection. I gave him biomycin, which is just a basic oxytetracycline. Uh, it's good for anything from ear infections to pink eye to foot rot to respiratories. It covers a wide range of things. So, Pneumonia, heart failure, bloats, liver failure. It's a long list of illnesses that feedlot cattle suffer from. And it's because they live so close together where disease can spread easily. But since a pandemic, D&D hasn't been buying as many cows because the big meat processors aren't paying enough for them. So there's not nearly as many in the feedlot as there used to be, only around 5,000. They used to have more than twice as many in the pens. After she's done, Chelsea mounts her horse to take the cows back out to join the rest of the herd. We agree to meet at the horse barn. When we get there, three horseback riders come trotting up, Chelsea and two other cowgirls, Maddie and Jenny. The three of them are an all-lady team of cattle handlers. It's lunchtime, so we head to Lou's Cafe in the tiny town of Proctor. Over burgers, Chelsea says she didn't intentionally hire only women. It just worked out that way. I don't specifically try to hire women, but it just seems like there's a lot more young women out there looking for a chance. They're looking to get their foot in the door in agriculture because they weren't raised in it. So they don't have an in. And I'm like, I love to be that in because it's so much fun. It's so much fun because you can just, you put a girl in a situation where she wants to be there, oh, she's going to do a heck of a job. So it's fun to hire young women. She says women seem especially interested in learning humane animal handling techniques how to read cows and settle them down when they get anxious. Jenny agrees. She grew up in Wisconsin around farms and always knew she wanted a job where she could spend all day on a horse. I just I enjoy agriculture, um, just yeah. working with the animals, the fact that you feed people, um, you know, and sometimes farmers, ranchers get a bad rap, but we really do care about what we do. Jenny says cows have subtle body language. They speak with their ears and eyes. You can tell they come in, call it high-headed, and you know it. Their head is up, they're, they're kind of flying around, they're just, they're spooked, they're scared, and it's just a normal response. So what we'll do with settling is you put them in a, a smaller controlled area, like a, an alley. You can walk them by you. Um, well, that's the goal that you're getting to, but a lot of times they'll run by you, but you keep walking them by you and you use your body language in the alley to get them so eventually they walk by you instead of running by you. So we'll settle those high-headed cattle. Sometimes you have to start on horseback, too. We pay our tab, thank Lou for lunch, and climb back in the truck to tour the pens. Jenny says cows that have never interacted with humans who come straight from life on a pasture get especially stressed out. That's most of the cows raised in the West on cow-calf operations. See, here's the thing. After cattle leave the ranch, it's all about increasing profits, and feedlots are a middleman. They buy cows from ranchers, feed them a special grain and vitamin diet to get their weight up as quickly as possible, and then sell them to the slaughterhouses. After that, the meat goes into the global meat supply. Each cow is only at the feedlot a short time. But Maddie says, while the cows are here, they watch them carefully for signs of stress or illness. A big thing is like their headset. So as you can see, if you're looking around right here, like everybody's kind of looking at us. Um, their ears are alert. Um, their eyes are bright. They're kind of looking around. Healthy cattle are always like doing something, whether that means that they're looking at you 
or if they're you know swishing their tails or chewing their cuds or anything like that um, healthy cattle are always going to be doing something um, if you see uh, a steer that's just kind of standing there not doing anything um, that should kind of is cause for alarm After all that bitter cold this morning, there was cause for alarm, Jenny says. We have a dead today, but I'm pretty sure it's a bloat that we had tried to pull the other day and we couldn't, we couldn't get him yeah. down to the hospital, so we had to stab him. So. Mm. It's just a fact. Dead cows are part of the job at the feedlot. But Chelsea and her crew do everything they can to minimize that. One big complaint about feedlots is how often cows end up standing around in deep mud and manure. Chelsea points out how clean their pens are. We actually have a guy that cleans our pens on a regular basis, and he is a steady Eddie. And so because of him and his commitment to keeping those pens as clean as possible, uh, we really don't have that much trouble with it. No, we don't. He, I mean, you look at these pens, even though we've had cold weather and snow, um, these pens are in good condition. But Jenny says there's some things they don't have much control over, like the behavior of the truck drivers that drop the cows off. She says the truck ride is especially frightening for cattle, and it needs to be quiet during the drop-off. But the truck drivers... You know, it's... I'm... <laughs> gonna kind of make fun of truck drivers a little bit here but some of them come in hooping and hollering there's no need for it there's no need for it um you know you can use a flag whip or a rattle paddle just a little bit you know honestly just a noise works I'm not gonna say that I've never raised my voice around cattle because then I would be a liar (laughs) because they can be frustrating creatures to work with but a lot of times if you just remain calm they'll remain calm Chelsea says when she first started working here, she saw a guy drag a cow by its legs with a chain. She said to herself, that will never happen again under my watch. She says it's a technique she knows other feedlots use, and she doesn't like it. I had a friend who left here, and they went. They worked at feedlots kind of all over and ranches all over. She sent me a picture one day of them dragging a Holstein out of a mud hole uh, because he just got stuck. Mm-hmm. It's like... Oh, we're so blessed. Yeah. We are. We, we really have a phenomenal crew all the way around. Chelsea says she gets a lot of freedom from the owner and her manager to let her use the humane techniques that she prefers. And she says that gentler touch goes a long way. A stressed out animal is not going to have the same immune system that a content animal has. And so, yeah, I think there's a push for good good proper handling techniques to keep those animals to try to avoid any issues that would cause that animal to get sick or injured or whatever the case may be. Driving home after visiting D&D Feedlot, my feelings are mixed. I can see that Chelsea, Jenny, and Maddie are doing their best to make cattle comfortable and that their techniques for settling cattle really work. I think D&D might have been a place Judy wouldn't have cried to send her cows to. But what about all the feedlots that don't have a crew like them? I decide to reach out to the person who developed these calming techniques. You might know her. My name is Temple Brandon, and I am professor of animal science at Colorado State University. In our Zoom meeting, Temple apologizes for underdressing. 
Even though she's wearing her signature embroidered western pearl button shirt with a silk scarf tied at the throat. It's not the first time I've interviewed her, but still, I'm a little starstruck. Temple has written all sorts of books and articles, and a movie was made about her childhood struggle with autism. Then, in high school, her life turned around when she went to stay on her aunt's ranch in Arizona. I had horrible panic attacks when I was a teenager. I was out at my aunt's ranch, and we were driving back from town, and the next-door neighbor was working cattle in a squeeze chute, and I you know, was vaccinating some uh, you know, feeder calves. And I noticed that some of the cattle kind of calmed down and they squeezed up the squeeze chute, so I went and tried it. So then, of course, I built a device I could get into that applied pressure that was similar to a squeeze, squeeze chute. Now, Temple's device is used as a calming method to help lots of people who need it. But the whole experience really got Temple looking at things through the eyes of livestock. And she didn't like what she saw. Well, I thought it was, you know, really bad. I was screaming and yelling at cattle, every animal getting zapped multiple times with electric prod, uh, getting the cattle running as fast as they can run, slamming into squeeze chutes. It was really bad. This was back in the 70s, before they started really enforcing those new humane slaughter policies. They were treated like this, under the assumption that animals aren't sentient. Temple recognized that wasn't true. They just experienced the world differently. So when I first started in Arizona, this is back in the 70s, I went to every feed yard in Arizona and I worked cattle. And I got down inside the chutes to see what cattle were seeing. You see, an animal is sensory-based. They're not word-based. Cattle are a lot like people with autism, Temple realized. Because they're so visual, things like hanging chains and long shadows can be terrifying. Temple worked with meat processors to get rid of the brutal treatment and make their environments more friendly. She invented something called a center track conveyor that the animals walk calmly into. It lifts them up under the belly and presses down gently from above and is used to soothe animals just before they're stunned unconscious before death. She then developed a scoring system for McDonald's that's been adapted and is still widely used today. It eliminated the subjectivity of the whole question of animal welfare and gave the entire industry easy-to-adopt protocols and tools. Cattle handling in the early 70s was atrocious. Things are a whole lot better now. Much, much better. She'd never say so, but I will. Temple single-handedly made our meat system more humane. But she says there's still a lot of work to do. Well, we've gotten to tolerate too many dirty cattle now, and there's a lot more cattle they're putting in the pens. And I think this is something that's slowly crept up. That's what I call bad becoming normal. And it happens slowly, and people don't realize this. I remember the clean cow faces I saw at D&D except for the sick ones in the hospital. It makes me think how dirty cows are sicker cows as well. Temple says another problem is that we're breeding way heavier cows, and that's leading to a lot of lameness. And if cows can't walk into the slaughterhouse, they're going to be dragged or abused. She says the climate crisis is creating a whole new problem too, heat stress. We need to be putting shade in some of these pens. Um, open mouth breathing in cattle is heat stress, period. That is scientifically validated. Cattle at rest should breathe with the mouth shut. And the more they pant and the further that tongue sticks out, 
that body temperature is rising along with that. But some of these cattle definitely need to have some shade and you have to provide enough shade so that all the cattle can fit underneath the shadow. Even at D&D, I didn't see opportunities to get out of the sun. And man, the eastern plains of Colorado can get downright scorching and it's getting hotter all the time. Temple says the pandemic got the whole country paying attention to the livestock industry. But they might not have recognized a very crucial takeaway. The way we produce meat is just too unwieldy. See, the thing about big, big is fragile. It's fragile. Like we learned that during COVID with the hog industry. Horrible. 300,000 head of pigs had to be destroyed on the farm. Waste of food. There was a lot of bad animal welfare. And we really learned with all the COVID stuff that big is extremely fragile. Millions upon millions of pigs couldn't get processed because they grew so fast they passed their expiration date. 300,000 pigs a week were killed, often using inhumane methods like suffocation. Their ventilation systems sealed off. Cows don't grow as fast as pigs, but poultry? Even worse. A few decades ago, there used to be lots of smaller slaughterhouses around the country, but recently, they've been all bought up by four main meat processors. Ranchers call them the Big Four. Tyson, Cargill, JBS, and National Beef. Those four process about 80% of all the beef in the world. Ranchers have a big beef with these companies because they say they're fixing the prices, leaving them with a tiny fraction of the profits from the cows that they've raised. We'll hear more about this problem next episode, but some ranchers are in agreement with Temple. The market would be fairer and more humane if more boutique slaughterhouses made a comeback. And yes, I did just say those two words together. So what can the smaller ranch plants do? Well, they have to be in a niche, like a local. Locals are really good niche, support local. And I think that, um, and local is going to be more expensive because they don't have the economy of scale. But when things go wrong, local will still work. Some ranchers are going super local. They're setting up rotating feedlot pastures on their own property to get that preferred marbled meat and they can now hire mobile slaughter units that come right to their barn to process their meat. But most grass-fed ranchers are relying on their friendly neighborhood USDA-inspected plant. But Temple says these places do have their own animal welfare issues. Often there isn't enough training and support like there is with the big guys. We need to be helping small plants with their stunning problems. I had one of them call me and they had some special type of pig that was, uh, you know, like much older, a really hard skull, and I talked to them, and they were using the wrong stunner. They were not using a heavy enough stun gun. Which meant they had to stun the animal multiple times, a major deduction in Temple's checklist. So yeah, in some ways, big meat processors might actually be more humane than small ones. The whole question made me realize I need to see it for myself. So. I set up a tour of a small processor here in Laramie. That's coming up. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. 
take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. When I walk into 307 Meats retail store, I notice the big window looking into a butcher room and the TV screen set up to show employees processing carcasses. Right off the bat, I see that these guys are serious about transparency. Kelsey Christensen owns the place, which opened just days before COVID hit. He comes out to greet me, but before he takes me out on the tour, he has a question. Before we go, do you want to go to Slaughter and see Slaughter? I'm, I'm happy to go okay. and see that if, if, okay. if it's happening. And Absolutely. I just okay. Some people are like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so this is our retail store. Um, I'm not an easy-queasy person. Plus, my feeling is that animal abuse has been possible for so long because meat processing is so hidden from view. Yes, by slaughterhouses who have things to hide, but also because we choose to look away. Today, I'm choosing to look. Kelsey takes me down the hall and outside where cows get dropped off. Yeah, so these are our holding pens. Um, There is concrete underneath of this bedding. We bed our animals every night. Um, I think that the animals are a lot more calm, and that's our our goal is to make sure that the animals are calm before they're slaughtered. Um, Increases better meat quality, those type of things. There's access to free water all the time. While we're standing there, a truck pulls up with animals to drop off. Kelsey says these cattle were feedlot finished so that they could get that white marbling consumers prefer. Grass-finished beef has yellow-colored fat that consumers don't like as much. He runs off to help unload them. Three cows come out of the trailer and into the pens. The area is completely shaded, and Kelsey says they can also mist them to keep them cool in the summer. Animals eye me nervously, but they never make a noise. One of the handlers comes around and talks to them. You'll look good. You're going to be delicious. (laughs) In case you didn't catch that, she says, you look good, you're going to be delicious. One of the steers is quickly navigated through the pens using large paddles into the knockbox. That's a nickname for the piece of equipment using Temple's design to silently squeeze the animal and catch its head where it can be stunned unconscious. Kelsey rejoins me. That, did that seem like, yeah, yeah they, so I didn't, didn't hear, hear any, a lot no, of mooing. And no. Once in a while, we'll get some mooing when they're getting in the knockbox. They don't like the head catch. If you've been on a ranch, a lot of, a lot of cows right. don't like the head catch. So so that's where they went over here yep. when he took yep. them? Yep, so he took it in the knockbox there. And, and, and that's where they're getting the stun? Yep, uh-huh. and that's where it's stunned. Um, yeah. The only exception to that is, you know, when we have hogs, we use electrical stunning. Um, so it causes a grand mal seizure. Um, and then the sticking part, that's what renders them dead. The grand mal seizure does the unconscious and insensitive pain. Kelsey says not just anyone can handle their cattle. We have a pretty extensive animal handling program. And so before an animal, a person can unload an animal or touch an animal, they have to go through that program. It was kind of funny. My dad came down. He was a butcher, right? So he's out there. He's helping us. And he's like, I'll go get some animals. And I'm like, actually, you can't, Dad. I haven't put you through my training program yet. He's like, what? You got a training program? I'm like, yeah, man. We have to do this. We have to keep these animals, you know, and treat them, treat them nice and whatnot. And it's not like we're babying them or carrying them on a basket. But um, animals have a brain of their own, right? Sometimes they just don't want to do what you want to do and keeping yourself calm and collected and moving them. That's where we do have a benefit probably over the big plants. 
Next, after the animal is knocked out, it goes to the slaughter room. The animal I saw unloaded from the trailer and sent into the knockbox is already hanging from the ceiling, bleeding out. It's a bit of a shock to me. I think, yeah, I made eye contact with that animal, and now he's dying. After it's stunned, so we use a captive bolt stun here, the animal rolls out, we lift it up by a hind leg and bleed it. The bleeding is actually what renders the animal dead. The stunning just renders the animal unconscious and insensible to pain. After the bleeding is com uh, finished, when the animal is laid down in a cradle, um, but they're laid on there, the uh, gentleman skins out the belly, then it moves over to the next station. The next gentleman finishes skinning the animal and then eviscerates the animal, removes all the organs. So that's what this guy's doing here? Yep. He's, he's so he just brought out a liver. In the, in the tray there, he's got the intestinal tract. So, and then he puts it all inside of there. Now what he's taking out is he's taking out what we call the pluck. Um, that's the heart and the lungs. After it's gutted, the carcass is split down the middle by a guy up on a ladder with a tool that looks like a chainsaw. None of this grosses me out, not a bit. The attention to hygiene in the place is hardcore, like a hospital. It's kind of a fascinating lesson in bovine anatomy. Who knew a cow's heart was the size of a loaf of bread? Or the eyeball, the size of a tennis ball? An animated hive of butchers works shoulder to shoulder, music blasting. What's astonishing to me is just how quickly the living, breathing cow I met outside is cut and ground and packaged and labeled into an incredible cornucopia of fine meat products. So this is, so this is our production room, um, and this is the cutting department. Uh, I don't even know how many. There's like 13 people on the cutting line today. And so today they're processing pigs. Pigs are not our specialty, um, but we all love bacon, so I make sure we still process <laughs> pigs. To Kelsey, the most important station in the plant is where all this meat gets packaged and labeled. They're very careful not to lose track of which ranch each and every cut of meat came from. Kelsey descended from a long line of butchers, and a big problem he saw was that small local ranchers would go to so much trouble to humanely raise their cattle to feed them nutritious grasses on mountain pastures. But then... And we lose that origin um, a lot of times when those calves leave the cow-calf producer and go to the feedlot, you know, some of those are bought in the sale barns or private treaty sales, those type of things. Uh, so we lose, lose that trackability. Kelsey believes there is a need for big meat processors because they feed the world at a price everyone can afford. But more and more consumers want to know where their meat came from and that it was raised humanely. The big packers can't offer that like he can. Uh, the JBS plant in, in Greeley, I've been in that plant multiple times in my career at UW, and you know they're slaughtering 6,500 to 7,000 head of cattle a day, right? Most of that product that leaves there is not actually in the final consumer form. It's leaving there as major primals, um, and then it's going to a further processing facility where it's getting into steaks, or it's going to the grocery store where they're cutting steaks at the grocery store, those type of things. And that's where the, the chain stops, the chain from the the cow-calf producer to the consumer breaks when it goes into the feedlot and into the major packers, right? Kelsey says happier animals mean better meat. He can put that on a stylish label for each and every rancher, unlike the big guys. 
Kelsey agrees with Temple that Big is fragile, but he acknowledges that he's fragile too. COVID shut him down more than once, just like it did the Big Packers. He wishes there was more support from the government for small processors like him. Financial, but also... To be honest with you, I think it wouldn't, wouldn't be out of the realm with USDA's big concern on animal handling. I think that the USDA should mandate that we have, you know, humane handling training. After the debacle we saw with meat processors during the pandemic, there's a new awareness of the big four monopolizing the industry. And the rancher is getting lost in the meat supply chain, getting very little credit or profits for taking good care of animals. A bipartisan effort to pass the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act is building in Washington that would support small and mid-sized slaughterhouses. It includes Mountain West lawmakers from both parties. Not to mention, a lot of money was set aside in the American Rescue Plan to tackle the problem, too. On my way out, I stop by 307's retail store and buy my dog some bones and admire the Hawaiian kebabs and jalapeno cheese patties. Both 307 Meats and D&D Feedlot have reassured me there's a growing middle way for discerning meat eaters, a way to have your burger and eat it too. But I don't buy anything else quite yet. Does it bother me to think of the cows I met out back? I don't know, maybe. But if I'm gonna buy them from anywhere, it'll be in a place like this. Next time on The Great Individualist, we'll visit one of the ranches that process their cattle at 307 Meats. After losing their family ranch, a father and son raise cattle on leased land using an innovative approach called regenerative ranching that enriches the soil and grows more native grasses. We kind of came to this type of management um, because we feel that it's better for the environment and that it is overall how, how we're going to maybe address aspects of, of climate change. How does the issue of animal welfare inform your decisions about eating meat? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Share them on social media at Modern West Pod or email us at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. I'm Melody Edwards. Tennessee Watson is our story editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Noah Greenspan is assistant producer. Anna Rader is marketing coordinator. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett and Diane Berner. History reenactment by Ashe and Vitale Herzmark. To see Anna Castro's photographs of D&D Feedlot and its all-lady crew of cattle handlers, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod. <laughs>